invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We will hear God's word this morning from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 through 16, and then jumping down to verses 20 through 25. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us ask God for his help to understand, believe, and obey his word. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word, that you have not kept yourself hidden from us, but you have freely and graciously revealed who you are and what you have done for us. We do pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth, would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe and receive the gospel. I pray, Lord, that your word would do what you send it out to accomplish, that you would save and preserve sinners by grace, by the grace that is found only in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Hear now the word of the Lord to you from Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now jumping down to verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. Well, until around the mid-20th century, John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress was second only to the Bible in terms of most copies sold. 
It has been in continuous print since 1678 and has sold over 250 million copies. Now, as many of you know, the Pilgrim's Progress is Bunyan's allegory describing the Christian life. Its full title is The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come. And it tells the story of a young man named Christian who leaves the city of destruction and journeys to the celestial city. It's a beautiful narrative and depiction of the Christian life, for to be a Christian is in many ways to live as a pilgrim, as someone on a journey who is looking for a new home. And this has been a, one of two major themes in the letter to the Hebrews. The author has upheld to us two great truths among others. He has proclaimed to us that Jesus Christ is preeminent, meaning he is supreme in and superior to all things. Kids, the, the key word we've, we've been hearing is better. Jesus is better than anything and everyone else. So that is one great truth. Jesus is preeminent. The second has been Christians are pilgrims who must persevere to the very end of their journey to enter their eternal rest. So to be a Christian is to leave this world, not in a literal physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. It is to be separated from worldly ways, knowing that this world is not your home. Its way of thinking is not to be your way of thinking. Its desires are not your desires. Its will is not your will. Its affections are not your affections. Its morality is not your morality. This world as it is now is simply the place of your pilgrimage as you journey to a better place. So like Abraham, the pilgrim is to obey God's call to go out from his land to seek a land of promise. Pilgrims were described for us in Hebrews chapter 11, these heroes of faith. In verses 13 through 16, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You can see why Bunyan described the Christian life as the pilgrim's progress from this world to that which is to come. That is a fitting summary of Hebrews 11. 
So as I come to my final sermon in this series in Hebrews, I went back and checked. This is sermon number 40 for Hebrews. So even though he says he wrote briefly, I did not preach briefly through Hebrews. As we come to this final sermon, I want to just use it as one final plea. One final plea to pilgrims, a plea for any unbelievers who may be here to become pilgrims, and a plea for believers to persevere as pilgrims. And the form of this final plea is informed by the command that you find in chapter 13, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him, that is Jesus, outside the camp. God is calling each of you to go to Christ outside the camp, to live and die as pilgrims seeking a better homeland, a better country, a better city, and a better king. And I'm going to make this plea considering three things. The pilgrim's door, the pilgrim's destination, and the pilgrim's exchange. So first is the pilgrim's door. And with these first two headings, the pilgrim's door and the pilgrim's destination, I am essentially asking two questions, which in one sense have the same answer, but not quite. The two questions are, where does the pilgrim's journey begin, and where does it end? And I say the answer is in one sense the same, because the answer is Jesus. The, the journey begins with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. You may remember the beginning of chapter 12, where the author said, we, we're running this race of faith looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You might say the, the founder and the finisher, the beginning and the end. Christianity, the gospel, salvation, it begins and ends with Jesus. And with this being said, you can still give two slightly different answers to the question. For you might say the pilgrim's journey begins with Christ crucified, and it ends with Christ crowned. It begins with Christ crucified. This is the pilgrim's door through which he finds the path of life, which leads to the celestial city. Jesus is the door. He says in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And what does Jesus say soon after that in John 10? He also says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the door opens when the good shepherd dies, which is why I say the door is Christ crucified. Therefore, if, if you desire to become a Christian, to become pilgrim and begin your 
journey, you must go to the cross. Listen again to verses 10 through 12 of our text, where the author says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, if you're just jumping into Hebrews here, you might be thinking, what what on earth is he talking about? Well, you need to remember that the author has just exhorted his hearers in verse 9 not to be led astray by strange and diverse teachings. Particularly throughout this letter, he has been warning them not to return to old covenant Judaism, not to trust in all of those former Mosaic ceremonies, including the many food laws that you find in the Old Testament. This isn't because the Mosaic law with its sacrifices and ceremonies were bad. They were good. They were just temporary. They were preparing for and pointing to the true salvation that was to come. So the author said, don't seek your spiritual strength from these foods, which I think here is just standing for all of the ceremonial aspects of the law. He says, don't don't seek your strength from food, seek it from grace. Well, then your obvious question is, well, where do we find this grace? If it's not in those Old Testament ceremonies anymore, where do we find it? And that's what the author is answering in verses 10 through 12. Once again, as he's done before, alluding back specifically to Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the one day every year that Israel's high priest was allowed to go not just into the tabernacle, but into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, which signified God's presence in the midst of his people. The high priest would therefore offer sacrifices on the altars for his sin and for the sins of his people. And then he would take the blood from the animal sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And this signified that death has been paid, sin has been atoned for, and now Israel has access to God. But this wasn't a permanent access because they had to do this every year. Death is the penalty for sin. And so the sacrifice signified that a substitute would die for the sins of the people and that the blood would cleanse them from their sin. But while there were many sacrifices that the priests and the people were allowed to to eat from after they killed the animals, they could not eat from the sacrifice that atoned for sin. And so After taking the blood into the Holy of Holies, the the body, the remains of the sacrificial animals would be taken outside of the camp. This signified God's judgment. They They are cast out so that Israel might have their sins paid for because God still has to judge sin. 
Now, the author uses that event to describe what happened when Christ died on the cross, because everything on the Day of Atonement was pointing to the day that Jesus Christ would go to the cross. The true righteous blood would be shed to cleanse us from sin, and our judgment would be paid. So Jesus, the author is saying, is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He's what everything on that day and in the Mosaic law was pointing to. So like the bodies that were burned outside the camp, signifying being cut off from God's presence and people, we know that Jesus' crucifixion took place outside the city of Jerusalem. John notes this in his gospel account. He says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And John later clarifies that this was not in the city, but near the city. So when the author says in Hebrews 13, we have an altar, he's saying we have the better atonement, the better sacrifice, the better blood. Altar is metaphorical shorthand here for Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. So he's telling us the grace we need is not found in food. It's found in Christ crucified. And his point is that just as under the old covenant where they could not eat of the sacrificial body, he's saying if you remain under the old covenant, you cannot benefit from Christ's death. All that he did for you will not serve you if you don't receive that by faith and keep trusting in something else. And so we can expand this to say that grace is only found in Christ crucified. Salvation is only found at the foot of the cross. So to become a Christian, to become a pilgrim, you must accept Christ crucified by faith. You must believe Jesus obeyed to provide my righteousness. Jesus died to pay for my sin. Jesus rose from the dead to proclaim my justification and eternal life. Would you become a pilgrim? Then fly to the cross by faith. Would you persevere as a pilgrim? Then you must return every day to the cross by faith. The journey begins with Christ crucified, but it ends with Christ crowned. That is the pilgrim's destination. I say this because the celestial city, using Bunyan's terminology, is the city where Jesus Christ sits enthroned as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the country where he reigns without opposition. So you may remember how the Son is described in Hebrews chapter 1. God says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the cross purchased salvation. And in another sense, the crown secures that salvation. Eternal rest is possible because Christ rules as king. Eternal life and rest is possible only for this reason. Your eternal inheritance is secured because Christ is king. Heaven is a place without sin, without suffering, without sadness, because it is the place of Christ's perfect, powerful, and everywhere present rule. The good news is that one day heaven will come to earth. The heavenly Jerusalem descends, as you see in the end of Revelation, and now God's redemptive rule will encompass all of the new heavens and the new earth. So when we speak of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we specifically mean Christ's redemptive rule, which is spreading now upon the earth through the proclamation of the gospel, but which will not be complete until Christ returns. So the new creation is beginning, but it is beginning in human hearts. Even though the pilgrim then is still in the world waiting for Christ's coming, there is a sense in which he has already been separated from the world. He journeys in the world, but he's no longer, as Jesus says, of the world. The pilgrim has spiritually left the kingdom of darkness for the kingdom of light. He has left the God of this world for the one true God. He has left the city of destruction for the celestial city. So we read in verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that city is where Christ is crowned. The pilgrim is a citizen of heaven, the subject of a heavenly king and kingdom. And so the pilgrim is on his way home. There is one door. There is one destination. The journey begins at the cross. It ends at the crown. Now let me pause here briefly just to, to say a word about this exclusivity. There are many who are troubled that there is only one door. There's only one truth. There's only one life. For Jesus not only said, I am the door, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There isn't another way or truth or life. So let me be clear, therefore, that, that Christians believe there is only one way of salvation, not because they think we as Christians are smarter and superior to everyone else, but Christians are, by definition, believers in and followers of Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, I'm in. So we can't follow Christ if we don't believe what he says. But for those of you who may still be troubled by this and think, well, it's really unloving 
it is really unkind to say that Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and deists and just all kinds of generally good people who are trying to live a moral life and following some other religion or philosophy of life are not saved and condemned to hell because they don't believe the same Jesus you do. But for those of you, let me offer you this goal. God did not have to make any way. Man rebelled against God's perfect love and law, goodness and grace, and God had every right to keep man under his just condemnation. And yet, for no other reason than the fact that God is merciful and gracious, he made a way out of sin, out of death, into eternal life. He made and opened a door that anyone can walk through by faith. The door is not reserved for white people. The door is not reserved for rich people. The door is not reserved for generally religious people. The door is not reserved for good people. The door is not even reserved for smart people. You can be dumb and be saved. Praise God. The door is open to anyone who would walk by, would walk in by faith. And so I ask you, how is that unfair? How is that unjust? How is that unloving? Imagine if North America is for some reason sinking into the ground. It's all collapsing. And there's a great bridge builder who makes a bridge for everyone to cross over the Atlantic Ocean to safety. And then the bridge builder sends out his people to tell everyone about this bridge, invite them to cross over, and gives time for them to cross. Now imagine if under this scenario, as people hear the news about this bridge and bridge builder, they start complaining. But why did he make only one bridge? Why didn't he make 80 bridges? And why didn't he make a bridge on the West Coast and only on the East Coast? Because now those on the West Coast have a lot farther to go. And what about people who do not like bridges or do not like to walk? Why didn't he make a luxury plane or a cruise ship so we could just sail across the ocean? What a mean and unloving bridge builder. Now, there are many arguments that are lobbied against the Christian faith. In my opinion, this is certainly one of the silliest. For God has mercifully made a way of salvation that is yours by faith in Christ. You believe what Christ has done, and you are saved. And also just think for a minute about the way that God made. He made a way by sending his only, beloved, infinitely worthy and valuable son who willingly came and endured the reproach, the shame, the suffering, the death, and the wrath of God for sin, which we deserve. How could you 
possibly complain and accuse such a God of being unloving or unjust. The cross of Jesus Christ is simultaneously the display of God's love and the display of his justice. We ought to, therefore, weep with wonder and joy to thank God for his mercy and grace and walk through the door. The pilgrim's door is Christ crucified. The pilgrim's destination is Christ's crown. And there is nothing, I believe, better than to be a pilgrim. But I need to be honest with you that becoming a pilgrim comes with a cost. Because the pilgrim needs to experience a very costly exchange. To be a pilgrim, you must give up in order to gain. So here are three exchanges that must take place if you are to become and remain a pilgrim. First, there is an exchange of shame. Here again, the command in verse 13. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So that's the whole point of being outside the camp. It was to be cut off. It was to be cast out. And so to be a Christian, you cannot remain where you are. Again, although you do not leave the world physically, you are leaving this world spiritually. The journey begins at the cross, which was a symbol of great shame in the Roman world. Only the worst, most despised criminals were crucified. So you didn't have Roman athletes walking around with big gold blinged out cross chains around their neck. No one was getting a cross tattoo on their arm. It was a sign of shame. The world, the kingdom of darkness, is by definition hostile to God. It hates his rule, it hates him, and it hates all those who follow him. So when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was rejected, he was despised, he was hated, he was mocked, he was beaten, and he was crucified. When you leave and forsake the world and its ways, you will face the same rejection. The world will shame and mock you. It will hate you. We haven't experienced this as much in the U.S., but we're seeing it more. But Christians throughout history and other parts of the world know this well. Jesus knew it well, too. Which is why he warned his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, there are two choices. Because you cannot receive both God and the world. And you can't be received by both God and the world. So if you want the world to receive you, then you will be rejected by God. And if you are rejected by God, you are forfeiting your soul. True, you will not bear the shame of the world. The world doesn't despise those who agree with its beliefs and ethics. But then you will bear the shame of your sin. The other choice is to be rejected by the world, to be mocked that you believe in one God and Jesus Christ and silly things like miracles and marriage between one man and one woman and that there's only two biological sexes and genders. But if you are rejected by the world, you will be received by God and you will no longer bear the guilt and shame of your sin. One of my favorite passages in Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian comes to the cross. Up until that point, Christian has been journeying with a great burden on his back, which he just cannot get rid of. But then Bunyan writes, I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, which is just a, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. As soon as Christian comes to the foot of the cross, his burden rolls into the grave and he never sees it again. Would you have the burden of the guilt and the shame of your sin gone forever? To have that weight, the weight of sin, the weight of failure, the weight of fear, the weight of shame taken away, then come to the cross of Christ and see it roll into the empty grave of Christ. For Jesus bore your shame on the cross. The author says you must go to him outside the camp, outside the respectability of this world. Would you make this exchange? I hope you would. Because to give up the world is to gain so much more. The second exchange is an exchange of security, which follows from the previous point. 
As we've seen, the gospel is not the promise of earthly pleasures and securities and successes. Oh, don't get me wrong. I believe the pilgrim in the world is far happier and safer than the citizen of the world. But from a worldly perspective, he, he's not secure. Spiritually speaking, he's living in tents, not houses. He's promised suffering, not stability. He must be prepared to lose whatever he might receive. See, there's no earthly security in Christianity. So if temporary, a, a temporary comfortable life is what you desire above all else, then don't become a Christian because it's not what you will receive. Yes, a Christian has an, an invincible comfort, but he's not comfortable on earth. He has pleasures forevermore, but they're not found on earth. He has unconquerable peace, but his relationship with the world is conflict. For Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this doesn't mean Christians never experience earthly pleasures and comforts. By God's grace, we do. Remember, Paul says he knows how to abound and how to be brought low, how to have plenty and how to be in want. So it simply means the Christian is never trusting or hoping in these earthly pleasures and comforts. God doesn't promise his people that bad things will never happen to them. In fact, because you follow Christ, there are bad things that are going to happen to you. But the pilgrim loses this kind of security to gain a better eternal security. For he gains the promise of God's presence. As he journeys, God says, I will be with you and never forsake you. He has the security of an eternal inheritance. God is promised to preserve the inheritance for his people, and he has promised to preserve his people for the inheritance. For Jesus promised his disciples before he ascended, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see this even in the closing benediction, where it says we are secured by the blood of an eternal covenant. An eternal covenant. And God himself, it says, will equip you with everything good that you need to do his will. He'll even work in you what pleases him. So he gives you everything you need. Jesus is the founder and the finisher of things. He creates it and he completes it. He produces it. He preserves it. So yes, you must give up earthly security. But you gain eternal security. There's an exchange of shame, of security, and finally and very briefly, an exchange of self. You look again at verse 21. It says, God will equip you to do his will. And it says that all the glory will go to the Lord Jesus. 
To be a pilgrim is to follow God's will, not yours. It's to live for Christ's glory, not yours. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And this is where I believe many stand at the open door and turn the other way. They might be willing to exchange one kind of shame for another. They might even be willing to exchange one kind of security for another. But they're not willing to exchange oneself for another. They're not willing to let another be the captain of their soul and master of their fate. But God says you must lose your life to, find, to save it. So I ask you once again this morning, are you willing to lose your life and let another lead you? Are you willing to serve and not be served? Are you willing to give up the delusion of autonomy and submit to your rightful authority? I plead with you one more time. Give your life to the one who has given his life for you. Live and die in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's all about grace. You want to know what, what's Hebrews about? The entire letter is about grace. Yes, it's been a word of exhortation, as the author says. But the exhortation, if you've been listening carefully, has never been, will you just do better? The exhortation has been over and over, don't reject the grace of the one who is better. And his final words are fitting. Grace be with you all. It is God's grace, not the pilgrim's good works, that bring the pilgrim to the celestial city. So become a pilgrim. And start your journey by grace. And stay on the journey by the same grace. You start by grace. You stay by grace. And as another famous John once sang, grace will lead you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I pray once again for myself, for my wife, for my children, for this church. Lead us to live by grace. Lead us to the cross, to Christ crucified, that we might Confess and bend the knee to Christ's crown. Lord, if there are any of you who have not started the journey, would you graciously bring them to the cross and the path of life? For we know that we cannot walk the door unless you draw us. And Lord, I pray for the pilgrims in this room especially pray for the weary pilgrims in this room. 
preserve them another day by the grace of Jesus Christ. Keep them on the path of life and bring them to their home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.